I have a theory. I think that the PIs all know who can make it in academia, but they won't say. And I have friends and I ask them and I say, why don't you tell them that they would be a great science writer or policy or, you know, a medical correspondent for a farm? You know, like there's so many jobs. There's a million other jobs you can do. And the mentors all say, the PIs, they say, that's not my job. I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to discourage them. You know, it's not my job to tell them that I think they might be happier, better on a different path. I totally disagree. I think that is their job. Um, and I think everyone would benefit if their PI was honest with them and said, you're a great scientist, but you are never going to make it in, in academia. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Hi, Joanne. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. And Lena is with us as well, right? Yes. Hi, Ofer and Jan. It's great to see you. Thanks for, thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, pleasure. <laughs> yeah, indeed, our pleasure. Um, so, Joanne, the CEO of a nonprofit called Edging, which we're going to talk about uh, later on. But would you like to introduce yourself and your career path to our listeners? Sure. So um, I uh, went straight from undergraduate uh, at University of Pennsylvania straight to graduate school at Harvard. I didn't take a break. Um, I'm a been sort of wanted to be a biologist since I was like nine or something. So it was no. Um, at the time, that was pretty common. It's a little less common now, I would say, to go straight to grad school. But at the time, it was pretty common. Um, if you can imagine those days, graduate schools recruited heavily for students as opposed to the other way around. Um, there, was, there weren't that many students um, looking for PhDs in biology and there was a lot of uh, recruiting. And um, I really liked the program at Harvard Medical School because it allowed us to choose from a lot of different labs um, for our work. So it was a good choice for me. Um, and I spent about five and a half years uh, getting my degree. I had a baby while I was in grad school, which was kind of interesting. Um, I defended my thesis when I was six months pregnant. So uh, that was exciting. Um, and uh, I had a, lot, a great mentor and a lot of support and it was a fantastic experience. Loved being in academia. But I knew pretty early on, and I, I never really understood the angst about moving outside of academia. It was so clear to me that that wasn't the path I wanted to take, even, how long is it now? Almost 30 years ago. Um, and my advisor was really supportive. He was actually um, on the advisory board of Genetics Institute, which was probably the first biotech on the East Coast, as opposed to Genentech was the first on the West Coast. And um, he was really involved in the nascent biotech scene. It was the very early days <clears throat> of biotech. And uh, he really helped me get interviews. I said, I think I want a job in industry. He's like, sure. He introduced me. Remember now, jobs then were in the newspaper. I don't know if anyone remembers that. There was no online. There was no online. Anything. Search Google. There was no online. There was like email was just a thing, you know. Like, you uh, opened the LinkedIn page in the newspaper? Yeah, no, you're right. There was a whole section with jobs in the paper. Wow. But he introduced me to, to three of his uh, colleagues, and I had three inter uh, two interviews and uh, one offer from a company called BASF which um, was eventually acquired while I was there by Abbott and has now become what is AbbVie, 
which is partially in Chicago and partially in Boston and a few other international locations. Um, and um, so I worked there for 15 years in pharma doing drug development on immune, immune drugs, really enjoyed it, learned a huge amount, had great uh, coworkers and fascinating research. I basically got, I was a molecular biologist on yeast and I basically got another degree in immunology uh, because I had to learn so much, uh, which was delightful. Scientists love to learn new things. So you, so you started working as a scientist over there? I did. I was a bench scientist with no postdoc. So it was a bit of a junior position. I didn't go. And then I was promoted to senior scientist after about a year when they kind of, I had my creds, if you will, like I hadn't done any postdoctoral work. Yeah. So mm -hmm. just sort of prove myself. Um, I can't even believe how excited I was about the salary. Postdocs now are making like out of a postdoc in industry, probably three times what I was making. But at the time it seemed like enormous. <laughs> um, and uh, I had a baby also, so my husband was still a student. So, you know, it was, uh, it was very welcome. I felt like I was really earning a living. It was great. Um, and then I had another baby about a couple years into my work there. Uh, my daughter was born. And then I started to manage people, which was, it turned out was good. I was good enough at it that it went well. So I stayed at the bench there for about 12 years um, and ended up as the group leader in immunology for molecular biology um, at, at AbbVie. It was an Abbott Bio Research Center at the time, which was all, you know, had its ups and downs, but was mostly fantastic. But yeah. Going, going a moment for the, to, to this transition mm -hmm. between yeah. uh, the end of grad school. So you mm -hmm. said you loved academia. I did. I loved academia, but the thought of like writing a grant for my own salary completely did not appeal to me. Mm. Um, I, I even, I don't know why I was, maybe because my advisor was involved in biotech and he was open to it. Um, I, I just, I, I think to make it in academia these days, so you know the numbers, right? 15% of U.S current trainees in science will get a full-time academic tenure track position. One five, 15%. Okay. Do you so, know what were the numbers back then? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know, but it, 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 you know, so I, but I think to make it in academia, you need a very certain profession, a uh, very certain personal profile. Um, and I think that you need to be a real self-starter because no one, you don't have a boss basically. There's no one telling you what to do. You have to find it all from within yourself. And um, I'm like, I like having deadlines and tasks and working with other people to learn new things. I don't, and to me, I don't think I had that single individual self-startingness. It just wasn't my thing. You know, my advisor had it. I know lots of people who have it in academia. You know them. They're successful, right? Yeah. I don't think I had it. I didn't have it. <laughs> so, but it was, I was no less of a scientist. I'm incredibly geeky. You know, like I, I mean, I got a, my first microscope for Hanukkah when I was nine. You know, like <laughs> this is not a thing that I could choose. I need science in my life, you know. Um, so I, I didn't have any identity crisis. I was like, oh, drug discovery. That seems like a good idea, you know. Um, and it was, it was a great, I learned a huge amount of science in pharma, uh, not to mention the, even learning the business is interesting, learning about manufacturing. I mean, we were making antibodies at like in gigantic fermenter, t you know, tanks in a plant in the back of the building. Fascinating work, right? Um, so to me, it's all fascinating when I'm learning new things. And so um, I always was learning when I was in pharma. So it was great. So it, it sounds like in academia, you had a mentor to, to see 
that, that did this transition and both yes. and also you asked yourself a, a very important question what kind of a, what kind of a professional person I am and does it fit the career path that is paved in front of me yes well well put yeah I, I, I did ask that question I think too many scientists don't ask that question um, and also their advisors don't ask them that so I have a theory I think that the PIs all know who can make it in academia <laughs> but they won't say and I have friends and I ask them and I say why don't you tell them that they would be a great science writer or policy or you know a medical correspondent for a farm you know like there's so many jobs there's a million other jobs you can do and the mentors all say the PIs they say that's not my job I don't want to disappoint them I don't want to discourage them you know it's not my job to tell them that i think they might be happier better on a different path i totally disagree i think that is their job um, and i think everyone would benefit if their pi was honest with them and said you're a great scientist but you are never going to make it in, in academia yeah. you know, like, <laughs> well you know um, once in a while they'll be wrong and uh, and they'll be scolded for it <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're right. Maybe, maybe it's because maybe it's because they again. So for many years they've seen themselves as they're training scientists and not training necessarily a contributing member of society, which is everything, including scientists in academia. It's yeah. you can be everything. Yeah. yeah. So this is personally I can see that in UCSF they they kind of change the tone for this because they right. do they do offer you a lot of options to explore other opportunities and openly say that. You are not necessarily going to be a PI, but yeah. we want you to be a contributing alumni. We want you to represent 100%. the brand. Right. Yeah. You have to keep doing science. It's what you do. The saddest thing for me is you spend 12 years training and then do something that's not, you know, not taking advantage of all that stuff that you learned and that you became good at, which is not just becoming, not just the path to becoming an academic. Um, the problem solving, the kinds of work we do in science are needed everywhere. It's just needed everywhere. So um, I love to see science politicians. I love to see, you know, uh, more. We need more of those, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, I uh, you know, policy, governance, everything. We just need it everywhere. So, so I'm super excited to see more schools like, like yours um, starting to really think about um, getting people hired, not getting them to faculty positions. And that has to trickle down to the PIs. We're not quite there yet. But the universities are starting to see that their statistics for getting a job, that's what's important. You know, not did you become an academic PI. So, so on the other end, do you see the private sector or like, for example, a communication like a journal or, yeah. or policymakers yeah. coming into academia and, and like actively exposing people? This is what we do if you're interested. So that is starting as well. That would be great. Um, you know, that's what we're trying to do here, right? Is to bring the, you guys are doing it. Um, many organizations are doing it. I, I, many uh, universities have a postdoc and a grad career office now. They bring in speakers and, and I think there needs to be curriculum, it needs to be required not voluntary, not mm -hmm. like, here's the office, come see us if you want us. It needs to be <laughs> like in year one and two, you have to take a full science careers curriculum. I think that if you get grant money from any government, you should be required to create viable, you know, employable scientists at the yeah. end. Makes sense. Um, yeah, and so I think that's where we need to move, where in order to get funding, you have to provide a reasonable 
structure of mentorship and career readiness. Um, so the, the, the organizations that are hiring, what they complain about um, is that this, the, the scientists don't have the skills for those jobs. But I just think that the scientists don't recognize that they have those skills. That I think there's a slight disconnect. I, I think many scientists have the skills to be editors, to be, um, you know, to, to work at Agene. We have t 10 different PhD jobs at Agene that don't require that you, you know, be, have the same skills as an academic PI necessarily. Um, and we have some trouble sometimes finding people who recognize it within themselves. So what kind of jobs do you have for PhDs? That was, that was interesting. Let, let's just uh, give an introduction. Yeah. Adjean is a nonprofit. I know you, you host um, sort of uh, the sequences, right, for the yes. different published yeah. uh, plasmids. Well, well, we have we have the plasmids, not just the sequences. Yeah, that's the that's the different thing, right? We have ninety thousand individual plasmids in the collection. So yes, yeah. Um, so I came to Agene after a short stint in for-profit biotech. So after pharma, I actually went to um, a biotech startup called RxI Pharmaceuticals, which is an RNAi uh, discovery biotech for four years or so. Um, I loved biotech as well. Fast-paced, very exciting. Um, and then, um, as often happens, the research team was laid off because the, we had a drug going into development and there wasn't money to fund further research unless we got partnership. We didn't have a big partnership at that time. Com the drug is in the clinic. The company still exists, but I've been gone about 10 years. Um, and uh, when I got laid off there, I, that was when I took the job at Agene, which is uh, nine years now or so, about nine years. So. So I've always done a lot of nonprofit work and um, it wasn't the job I was looking for when I left biotech. I had a very, I had a, something I was looking for and then this came along through my network and um, it, you know, was looking for, so what I did at Abbott was make hundreds of plasmids. That was one of the core facility jobs that I managed. Um, anybody at, at Abbott who needed a new, a new gene cloned or a new construct would come to our group and we would create it for them. So I'm a bit of a cloning jockey already. I knew a lot about plasmids. Um, and then also they wanted someone who had managed people and who knew about nonprofit. And so it was it, a lot of my, so the job was never advertised. The only way to know about the job was to know people. And so a couple of people who knew me and knew I got laid off said, Joanne, this is you. Like, it's describing you. You have to apply for this job. And I was like, that sounds fun. I, you know, I can get paid to do nonprofit work. Wow. So, um, so that's when I came to Agene. And uh, Agene was about 16 people at the time. And now we're about 100 um, weathering the coronavirus storm a little bit, but doing pretty well. Uh, we're distributing again now pretty, at a pretty quick pace. Um, so Agene is a, a repository. It's a collection of physical research materials, but, you know, part of our nonprofit mission is to make their data also available and accessible to everyone. And we have a number of different things we distribute. We started with plasmids, that's our core collection, but we also do um, prepared viral vectors like AAV and lentiviral vectors on dry ice ready to use in experiments. Um, and we just started a new service this week. Leave it to the ad genies to do something new during a pandemic. They're just amazing. Um, uh, they're now distributing not just stabs, but also DNA ready for cloning. So um, not for the whole collection, but for like 200 of our most popular materials for starters. It's like a beta project. 
and uh, they're already getting requested. We've already had about 15 requests in a couple days. So we're excited about that. Um, that way you can buy it and start your cloning right away. You don't need to go through the process of growing it up and Scientists are lazy. If they, save, yeah. if they save a week, you know, come on, Angie. Get efficient, it efficient. It's very efficient. The well, most lazy person is the most well, efficient one. That's right. Well, our mission is to accelerate science. So anything we can do to make it faster is better. Um, so um, so uh, I came to Agine and um, I loved every minute of it. It's, uh, it's been hard. It's been fun. I'm learning all the time. Uh, we, have, do we, do, we do new things. It's an incredible team of people. The Agines are just an incredible team of people. And a lot of them are PhD scientists, but we're all pretty geeky, even the ones that are PhD scientists. We also have a big tech team because our website is really very sophisticated and we have a sophisticated inventory management system as well that talks live to the front end uh, yeah. marketplace. So, um, so we have about, uh, we have a big software coding team um, who are just fantastic. It's just a fantastic, and our product team is fantastic. So um, I really enjoy working with them and seeing what they can do um, when they get when they put their minds to it. So, and so what do they do at Agine? There's like so many different jobs. I mean, I'm the executive director, I'm a PhD. Uh, my chief operating officer is a PhD, my chief scientific officer, the production head. Um, we have PhDs who do scientific support, like technical service about DNA and plasmids and anything in the collection. They're gonna help you find what you're looking for. They're working with depositors to shepherd the deposits in. Uh, we have um, bench scientists working on the AAV project. We have marketing scientists who are doing writing the blog, managing the blog, doing ads and communications, going to conferences, doing marketing. Um, we have a business development team. A bunch of them are PhD scientists uh, where they're working with scientists around the world to try and figure out how to solve distribution problems around the world and also to um, solicit deposits um, you know, in a cost effect, we're a nonprofit and we keep the costs very low, as you know. So we have to be, um, the most expensive thing for us is getting people to deposit, you know? Um, and so that's kind of, we have to work on that all the time because if the collection isn't living, it doesn't distribute it. It's gotta be current and interesting. So um, we have a lot of people who do that business and other business development for the company as well. Um, we have a tech transfer team. Um, you know, uh, so there, you know, those are all different jobs that you can have as a scientist and only the ones working on basic research on virus developing protocols are the ones doing traditional bench scientists. Right. Most of the bench scientists at Agine are bachelor's technicians. They're picking your plasmids, you know, send, getting stuff ready to be sent out. So, so that's interesting. So I, I, I'm assuming you do part of the recruiting uh, for those positions. So how do you look at a severe resume of a PhD science, you know, or I don't know, like, like what kind of experience or what do yeah. you look for when you have that scientist applying for a, as you say, business development position? Yep. Yeah. Well, so the first thing we look at, and we hire a lot of people right out of grad school, by the way. So we think PhD scientists have a lot of useful skills. Um, so it is helpful if they have shown some interest in the, the other field that they're gonna be in at Agine while they were in grad school. So for example, our blog manager has her own blog about right. bacteria, you know, microbial mm -hmm. menagerie. She's a micro, microbiologist. Um, right. Our marketing manager 
started an organization called Letters to a Pre-Scientist and did all of the marketing and communications for that organization. Hey, we're um, going to do this this uh, next Friday. Oh, yes, is, is as, it, as a lab. Oh, do Letters to a Pre-Scientist? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, she'll be. So one of the founders works at Agi and she's the head of marketing. So one of our mark companies. So, um, but that's not, some people came straight out of their graduate work. Um, so what we really look for most, so let's say you're a technical service scientist, which is an underappreciated field, by the way. If you're like really geeky and like to know a real lot about something and teach other people about it, technical service is a fantastic career. Um, and so our technical service scientists love what they do. They love to help scientists. They love to be really good about plasmids and the stuff that we have. They know a lot about something and they can teach it all the time, right? So what we're looking for really there is how they apply or, or you know, do they really have a good resume because they're gonna be doing communication a lot? Have they read the job description and have they applied their cover letter to actually meet the the, you know, how, why are they interested? So we get an enormous number of cover letters that say how much people want to cure cancer. And <laughs> Agene does not cure cancer. Agene is a nonprofit in, in the open science and reproducibility space that helps, you know, with high quality materials. We want to hear about how you're interested in nonprofit, how you want to work on a team that's changing open science, you know, like, you know what I mean? So people like yeah. they just write this cover letter and has nothing to do with the job. So Agi is a little unique, but there are many unique jobs like that that yeah. are sometimes the most interesting ones, you know. Okay. Um, so that's what we're really looking for is someone who has applied themselves to um, really understand what the company. It's easy to find out online. What do we do? How, why they're interested in it? Um, because it's a very close team at a nonprofit and we really want them to be part of that mission. If I mention again the question, uh what we talked about early on. So you have to ask yourself which kind of person you are and what job are you oh, are you into? Yeah. Which answer will fit the nonprofit? Which answer? Well, I mean, so one of the things that anybody outside of academia worries about is can you work on a team? Because a lot of people in academia get through their degrees working very independently, maybe with their PI, but they do their project a lot by themselves. And when you get out of academia, everybody works on a team. And so one of the first things we want to see is that you have that capability and can express. So um, if you're not the kind of person who like, if you're not prepared to learn how to work well on a team and take the time to communicate clearly with other people and share a project, um, you know, that's, that's a, you might want to stay in academia because you can do, <laughs> the, you know, you can do that there. Um, so what other kind of person wants nonprofit? Um, you know, it, we're good at nonprofit when we come out of academia because academia is often nonprofit. We want mission driven work. A lot of scientists are doing what they do because they're pursuing a mission. Um, so it's a good fit psychologically for many people that they have a mission and there's a reason why they do what they do every day. Sometimes it's harder to get that in a for-profit company. Like a lot of scientists go into tech transfer or venture capital or, you know, consulting. The link is not always so clear. I think all those fields help people too, but I think mission-driven work is particularly attractive to scientists. Um, we're passionate about what we do and Adgene is passionate. We want to see you have that passion for what we do. Let's say Adgene was a for-profit, right? Like what you do could definitely be a for-profit company. How do you think it would be different working for Adgene 
as a nonprofit versus a profit? Well, I've worked in for-profit companies. It's it's a little different. Um, you get paid a little more, probably. Um, you know, um, the culture might be slightly different. Um, the requirements might be a little. Um, I think what most companies are looking for is initiative. They want to see the kind of people that are going to own their projects, for-profit or nonprofit. Scientists mm -hmm. are good at that. Um, and I think when, when I was hiring in biotech, that was one of the first things that I would look for is people that really were ready to take responsibility for a project um, and run with it and, and be able to have that initiative. Um, and, you know, there's so many different kinds of positions that if, you, if you're not a person with that kind of initiative, there will be a job for you. You know, there are jobs where we just need people who are great at the bench, right? right. If you have good hands and you want to become like, you know, work in pharma and do assay development, that's incredibly valuable, right? Um, it could be that you're not good at the bench. We all know those people, right? People with the bad hands. They're, we know them, <laughs> right? And you can still get a degree. You can still become a scientist, right? And you can still even run a lab sometimes, right? But you probably shouldn't pick a job that focuses on being able to accurately pipette 96 wells because it's not your thing, you know? So look, work is not always just fun. Not 100% of work is fun. But what you want to try and find is so that some of work is fun and you're good at it, right? Because if you never have areas where you can shine and show your strength, work can be super frustrating. So I think the idea is to find a job where you enjoy some of the things that you do and you're good at them. Not all the things, but some of the things, right? When yeah. you're, you're sad Friday night and happy Sunday evening, that's yeah. probably a yeah. good fit. That's a good fit. And that you, yeah. it, you may not have that 100% of the time, but yes. Yeah, I always have, I have a slide where I have like a happy dance, you know. <laughs> Once in a while, you want to have a happy dance, you know. Like, I did this thing, I'm happy, you know, like at work, so. <laughs> you have an experience in hiring. A lot of people, before this process began for them, are eager to know is what could, have, what could they do to prepare themselves, uh, both okay. credentials professionally or personally, soft skills. What mm -hmm. do you see missing yeah. uh, in people coming out straight of academia? Yeah. So I don't call them soft skills. I call them plus skills because okay. there's nothing soft about them. They are absolutely required and they are not second rated skills. They are a hundred. And in fact, most plus skills are also useful in academia by the way. Okay. So it's not like in practicing plus skills, you're throwing your academic potential away. You are increasing your academic potential by being a better communicator, by learning to speak very well, um, or at least possibly if it's not your strength. Um, learn how to write quickly and well. Um, every career in science needs, almost everybody needs to be able to write. The faster and better you can do it, and the more practice you have, because it's a thing you can practice, um, the better that's going to be for you. Um, a, a demonstration of teamwork, join a committee, be in a collaborative project, run a collaborative project, start a journal club, something that you did that shows your initiative and your ability to lead and work in a team. Anything aside from just working at the bench is good to have on your resume. Um, become a mentor in a formal program. It, it, mentorship is a great practice for learning how to manage people. One of the surprising things is if you get out of a six-year postdoc 
you've been in training for say 12 years, right? When someone hires you, they think you already know how to manage people. And if you have no experience working with people and managing people or teams or projects like explicit experience, um, you're going to flounder pretty fast. And maybe you're not going to do as well as you would because you're pretty old, right? I mean, uh, no offense, but like, good you're, vintage. Pretty, you're pretty old. <laughs> like, I mean, it's not like you're out of, I mean, my son got out of college at 22 and a year later, he's managing other engineers, you know, um, you're already, I don't know, I was 28. I would have been 34 after my postdoc if I did a postdoc a couple of years even there, you know, that's like experienced in the working world and you have a degree, you're a doctor, you know, you have a doctorate. So if you can practice by mentoring, by training undergraduates, by having an intern in your group, that should be on your resume. Um, you know, um, networking through your local bio organizations. If you're lucky, like, like um, in Massachusetts, we have a bio, mass bio, you guys have a Bay bio, um, you know, meeting people in industries. BCBA. Yeah. What's it called? I'm sorry. Uh, BCBA. We actually had yeah, a, a person on our, um, on our podcast. Great. Great. About it. Yeah. So yeah, you can link to that. So, so those organizations offer opportunities to meet and talk with scientists. You know, how do you get jobs? You get jobs because you know people. So that's another reason to do it. But um, all of those things are ways that you can prepare. Um, if you don't know what faith, if you're thinking about going into drug development, and you don't know the difference between phase one, two, and three, you should learn. You know, like, also, a lot of you are in universities. Take class. Like, take a biotech class, for goodness sake. Even if you don't think you're going to like it, just learn about it. You know, take a science writing class or sit in on it. You don't even have to do it for credit. You know, you have, the, you have a university. You can take anything, right? Um, <laughs> you know, so think about what plus skills you might be interested in and you might do something and you might be like, wow, I really like this. You know, um, this is making me jazz. This is what I want to do, you know? So I, I can think, but the problem is that the PIs are like, just do make papers for me, you know, just make papers for me. And you have to really be a grown up, get a backbone and stand up for yourself and say, I'm going to do this other stuff too, because it's really important for my career, you know. You're not just a, a pawn. You also have to build yourself you up. This is the time to build yourself. This is the learning curve in your career that, yeah. That's, a, that's an excellent way of putting it off air. You, are, you cannot just be a pawn. You have to own your career development at this time. Uh, we get also a lot of questions uh, in from even earlier steps, people who have finished their master's. So in Israel, it's a bit different than yeah. the States. You, have, you can do a bachelor's, a master's, and, and a PhD. And yeah. people who have finished their master's, not necessarily in life sciences, in many other uh, uh, mm -hmm. scientific fields or academic fields. And the question, they, they ask, should I take a pause, take some experience outside of academia and go back? Would it, would it be beneficial later on if I'm not going into academia? Um, I think it would. I think if you definitely know that you don't want an academic path, um, it certainly would help to have met people and had the experience of working outside of academia before you go get your PhD. You may also find that you don't need a PhD. Truth be told, you learn a huge amount on the job in science. Um, and you may turn out that you really I know plenty of people who have advanced, particularly in pharmaceutical companies or in patent or in um, policy or in communications who don't have PhDs. 
So it's a lot of years to work for a very little money. So, and I'm actually a huge proponent of postdocs being for ac people who want to go into academia and everybody else being done after their PhD. I'm, I, I think one reason why people have to do a PhD is they've, a postdoc is they've made zero career plans during their graduate training and then they're just stuck. They like, I they don't know anybody and they have no plan. So they do, they have to do a postdoc because they have no choice. As long as you're doing good science, that's not a problem. But to my mind, um, you're a scientist after your PhD. You don't have to go get a postdoc, you know? And so what should a postdoc be? A postdoc should be training to become an academic professor, which means reviewing papers to how to purchase for the lab, how to budget for the lab, how to manage people, how to mentor students. Um, a lot of postdocs don't get that experience. That's what they should be learning, you know? Um, so it's kind of the incentives are kind of messed up for the PIs because they need you to write papers. So there needs to be some way to, to make that work for everybody, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think for the PIs, the postdocs are the most efficient machines <laughs> they hire. They're trained already. They're, yeah. they're middle management in the lab. So they need to, right. you, have, you have a strategy and they're, they're performing with the, with the grads and undergrads and tactics. But I would, I would, I would oppose that. The, so okay. for, for me, a postdoc, not necessarily, so limiting a postdoc to only people who want to go into career will, okay, return on investment for academia, that's mm -hmm. absolutely right. Yeah. But for, for me, as an international, a postdoc in the U.S. Was, was a very, very, very good meaning to, first of all, get familiar with, the, with a different mm -hmm. culture, moving mm -hmm. to get familiar with a different culture, do science on a completely different level. So I, Israeli scientists and Israeli universities are amazing, but budgets and sizes is different and yeah. uh, and and this is a learning curve as well even if i'm going into uh, academia afterwards or not and mm -hmm. um, so so you can do a postdoc but you have to be as, as it came out through what we talked until now you have to be honest with yourself and have a plan yeah have you have to have a plan what i what i hate to see is people who do like a four or five year postdoc and then they do another four or five year postdoc and by that point when you go outside of academia to look for jobs, you just look like someone who failed at academia. Yeah. You don't look like someone who said, I'm learning to be a scientist. Maybe I'm polishing my career with a three-year postdoc somewhere great, but I have a plan for what I'm gonna do next and I'm gonna work to get there. Um, you can't just write papers and work at the bench to get to a career outside of academia. You have to do some other stuff, you know? And so, um, you have to work on those plus skills and you have to work on meeting people and looking for opportunities. So I agree. I, I, it can be beneficial. You don't have to do it. I didn't do it. I know plenty of people who don't do it. It can be beneficial if you treat it in the way that it is a training opportunity. What, what concerns me is people choose labs without researching what that culture is going to be like. Exactly. So they choose a lab and the PI just wants them to be a slave at the bench. And, and maybe they have a visa issue and they really are a slave because if the PI, um, you know, has a problem with them, he'll revoke their visa, you know, permissions or something, you know, so they really have to just do like, like a boss, not a mentor, not a train, not being trained, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you have to research the labs you go to to make sure that you're going to be treated ethically. They're going to have opportunities um, and get the kind of training that you want. Exactly. So, I think I yeah. think maybe ask yourself if your mentor, if your your PI, your your proposed PI, will be something as you mentioned in your PhD that 
is looking outside and can actually offer you the opportunity to see something extra that is like yeah. of interest to you might be you might be wrong so you might be choose someone and come in but you have to ask yourself or yeah yeah this question yeah absolutely and and i think um too many people just say oh cool science and they pick a lab and they don't ask the questions of the alumni of the of the record of the pi of his relation his or her i have to be careful about that i do that all the time their relationships um their um you know, does the PI have industry relationships? Do they work in policy? Like, what are, are they interested in what you're interested in outside of just the bench science? So there's a lot you can find out now. Internet is fabulous. We didn't have that in the old days. You can look up a ton of, first of all, you should interview alumni of the lab. You can find them. You can call them. You can email them. They'll talk to you on the phone. Um, what was their experience? You know, would they do it again? Would they choose the same lab again? Why, why or why not? You know, um, you have to really do that. Spend. We're scientists. Do research before you pick a lab. Don't just go like, oh, cool paper, you know, and then go there. Yeah, so this touch on, on another point that is lacking. And because all of this is, is doable if you have a good network. A lot, of, a lot of first, second year PhDs, they have no idea how to do networking, where <laughs> to go, who to talk to, yeah. what, why do someone wants to talk to me? So how would you approach like networking if you had to build a whole new network? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a lot of online content about this. So, and actually, if you go to the Agine YouTube site, I have a whole webinar on about starting to learn how to network. I call it not networking. So we're going to so link for this. I'll Absolutely. give you the link. Yeah. I'll give you the link. <laughs> so the, the not, I call it not networking. I always have because networking is like, implies to people that you like go to boring events and you exchange business cards with people you don't like. And then you never call them again, you know, like, or, you know, you meet someone and that means it's, a, you have a network like, oh, I met you one time. I'm now I'm going to link in with you. I met you for three seconds, you know, like, um, and now we're linked in. So now we're a network. That's not how networking works. Networking is people that are relationships. Um, it doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted. If you're extroverted, you might like going to events. If you're introverted, you might talking like talking one-on-one -on -one with people in more controlled situations, but Academia, non-academia, it doesn't matter what you do. Your science is going to benefit from knowing more people and having more relationships. So I don't like urge people to network fake just to meet people. I urge people to do something else. Be on a committee, join a group of people, have lunch with another human being once a week, twice a week, whatever your schedule is. Um, safe, with safe distance. With safe distance <laughs> on Zoom. On Zoom, coffee, virtual coffee, um, you know, um, and you know, you, you don't want it to feel weird. If it feels weird, it's probably not doing anything. It's creepy, you know, so that's one of my big rules of networking. If it feels creepy, don't do it. I, I get these people call me and say, well, I called this person every day for a week and they haven't gotten back to me. I'm like, because that is creepy. Now you are stalking them, you know. Like, so um, mostly you just, so I, I always and then once you have a relationship with someone you don't have to stay in touch with every person all the time they'll come back in your life at some point so like i had actually when i was interviewing for the job at agine i had been on the board of an organization in boston called west women entrepreneurs in science and technology and i had given an award to the founder of agine 
as a woman founder of a nonprofit on a stage. Like I met her for like 10 minutes. Okay. And I met her family, her (laughs) husband is the co-founder and fast forward a few years. And now I'm applying for the, her job. She doesn't want to be CEO anymore. She wants to be CSO. She still is. She's the CSO of Agene. Um, And um, you know, I didn't like, I didn't go to the recruiter or like, I just called her and I said, Hey, remember we met on the stage and we, she said, Oh yeah, you made a bad joke about women in science. I was like, yeah, that was me. I'm I'm, I'm interested in your job. So I already had credibility, right? I'm nonprofit volunteer. I met her as a woman leader on the board of a women in science organization. We had coffee. That's how my interview started. Right. I was meeting the you know, and, and when I got to the interview with the board, I knew three of the board members already through various ways, the work that I had done. So I want to be honest, most of my network comes from my work in doing diversity in science, something I was very passionate about. Um, it happened very naturally. I met other people who were passionate about diversity in science, and we formed Association for Women in Science and mentoring groups. And that work working together with people, that's a natural way to meet people. It's not creepy. It's not weird. And even if I didn't see you for a couple of years, I can say, remember me, we did that thing together. Oh yeah, that was great. You know, so another rule of networking is don't ever be a jerk because you never know when that other person is going to show back up in your life. Science is a small world, right? Yeah. Um, and so I tried, I have some people who I don't get along with, but I try pretty hard <laughs> <laughs> to do to do favors for people to work you know to to do help people when i can and that comes back to you in your network and in your work so you can't do it when you're desperate so if you need a job next week that's not the time to build relationships it, you have to start and just do it all the time you know um so my my that's kind of what my talk is about is about ways to build those relationships naturally without it feeling creepy yeah i think that's that, great that's perfect yeah. I think for especially for Israelis, it, it's hard. Like we we don't we don't we don't. <laughs> we have the army first of all. Right, that's your first network. You all have the army, yeah. right? Right. Three yeah. years of meeting, constantly meeting new people. <laughs> yeah. From different places. Right. So just be nice. Do favors for people. Share your snacks. It's really can be very simple. You know, when your mom sends you, you know, uh, hamantash in, in the mail at the army, you should share it. You'll, you'll get a lot. You'll get a lot from that, right? Yeah. Also, I mean, Israel also is a very everybody's related a little bit. Like, there's a lot of people. <laughs> so, there's nothing wrong with using your family and your your religious community or your social. You know, that's all part of your network. It's all open. Uh, you know, people that might be good for. I, I never like. Um, I don't meet people for a specific reason. You never know who's going to be helpful and interesting, you know? And so I, I just kind of am interested in people. I like meeting people. So, so I think we'd be happy if you can um, elaborate a bit about uh, the diversity in science volunteer work. That's a very important sure. issue for all of us. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like it's such an exciting time for diversity. I feel like everyone just got on my bandwagon. It's, it's, I can't tell you, we have that expression in Hebrew. I don't know how to say that in Hebrew, but, but um, like, you know, I've been doing this for almost two decades now and it's, 
a lot of screaming and like, come on, pay attention. And all of a sudden, like everybody's paying attention. It's awesome. I had four calls in the last two weeks for companies that want me to come in and do a talk about implicit bias in science. Um, and it was me knocking on doors before. And now the leaders are coming and saying, we need to start thinking about this. I am, I am sorry for how it happened. It's a terrible tragedy, the Black Lives Matter, the inception of the movement um, that someone had to die so publicly. Um, but the outcomes and you know, George Floyd's memory should be a blessing to the community as we hopefully make some progress. So, um, and for women, I would say the Me Too movement did the same thing. So, um, you know, not the whole world of scientists is problematic. We're not all racist and we're not all sexist, but there's some pretty bad actors that were getting away with a huge amount of damage. And I think the first thing that will happen for both of these movements, and it's happening for, for the men who have been harassing and abusing women, um, mostly it's men, there are some women abusers as well, but mostly it's men, um, that, um, that we got to get rid of those people. We got to get them out. They don't, they shouldn't get allowed to have trainees if they're going to be that. They just can't be, you know. So we're making progress there. It's finally happening, right? And I, so I feel like me too, me, me too has to reach science. Like I feel like it's not, it's not there yet. Oh, it's there. Oh, it's there. Come on. This, come on. There are these professors. Maybe more are, so here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th I think it, it is coming. You cannot be that kind of jerk anymore. I, I don't want to start listing names on your podcast, but if you're on Twitter, you, you know, there's a whole list of yeah. who's harassing. You can go to Google Docs now and find a list. And they are starting to be prosecuted because women are coming together and offering testimony as a group. People still don't believe one woman. That's pretty sad. But if most of these bad harassers and abusers have done it many times have done mm -hmm. it many times. So, okay, so that's a problem. What are the good things? The good things is I think finally we can't put the burden of diversity on the underrepresented groups. This is not a women's issue, it's a people's issue. It's not a yeah. black person's issue, it's a white, it's a people's issue. Um, we all have to work on it. Um, and so that's where the whole anti-racist, you can't just not be bad, you have to be good at this point. Um, so it has been, the joy for me of doing this work is the different people I've met so through this work, I have met so many diverse people. Um, Agin is super diverse. We're so proud. Our small company has, um, you know, pretty, when I came to Agin, we were about 5% racially diverse. Now we're about 16% racially diverse. We're not there yet, but it's better. Um, we don't have any PhDs that are black. I've been working on that. I've been recruiting at HBCUs, at historically black colleges and universities. I'm doing, I feel like I'm doing something about it. Um, mm -hmm. You can't just watch. Nothing will change if you just watch, you know. Yeah. Um, we have a big LGBT contingency at Agene, and we're founding members of the Mass LGBT Chamber of Commerce. We're really proud of that. Um, we have, we support women's groups. We're sponsors of She Geeks Out and other, um, I work with HBA and, and AWIS. Um, we do a lot of sponsorship of those types of events. Um, so, and all those things have so thoroughly enriched our community. Um, what do they do for a, personally for me, I just think diversity is, is right and moral and correct. What does it do for a business though? What does it do for a lab? it makes you have better, smarter people. Because if you're too biased to see the talent that you have that's diverse, you'll miss out on talent. You won't hire the right people. You won't uplift the people, you'll crush them down. 
So if you have, you know, black students in your lab and you don't know how to, how to help them thrive because you haven't bothered to learn what their needs are, you waste their talent, you know? So you really have to work to make them be included. Um, so I'm a big, I'm obviously a big advocate. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've enjoyed this work because of the people, the, the beautiful people that I've met doing the work. Um, great scientists, great advocates for change. And uh, it's a good time to get involved. So, you know, don't just sit back and watch. That's my charge to your listeners. Get involved, you know. Um, it's your turn. All the scientists now, you, the young folk are making, are going to make change. So we got to get them active. Yeah, so there is a lot, a lot of room for grassroots initiatives in this field. And yeah, from you don't have to be a PI, you don't have to be a CEO. You can be a first-year PhD student, a first-year grad, undergrad student, and be very involved. Yeah, 100%. I was just listening to the, this week, it's Black, Black in Neuroscience Week on social media. Um, and it's been a fantastic week of programs. They put this together in a hurry. Um, and they just did a panel on mentoring. And one of the speakers really said, um, you can't put the burden of this on black people. It, it, we all can get involved. So instead of telling black people, which some PIs do, don't get involved in this radical stuff. They should be telling everybody to get more involved, you know? Um, and so I, that's how I see it is, um, it, and it is, it is rewarding and enriching work. Reaching the end, if um, you know, a few summary tips. So our audience is mostly grad students and postdocs. Yeah. When you start your grad school, how you pick a PI, how you pick a lab, what are the key questions you need to ask yourself career-wise at the very stage, the very beginning? I think the first, when you pick a lab, what you have to ask is, am I choosing a lab that will support any career path? Um, is my PI going to be a mentor and help me find a good path or is my pi going to be a boss and make me write you know just pipette um you know and so i think you have to do research to find out is that person going to teach me what i need to learn um you don't know what you want to do yet so it's not it's not am i going to learn the right science it's am i going to learn the skills to find my way in my career um, and you want to look for those mentors that at the very least are going to support whatever path you take um, I hate to hear a graduate student graduating and they find out that their PI won't write them a recommendation because they're not taking an academic um, approach. Um, that is unethical, but it still happens. You don't want to end up there. So I think it is important what lab you choose. Um, and if you chose a bad lab, get out as fast as you can. Go somewhere else. So that would be my... Compromise change do not compromise if and, and especially if you are bullied or harassed or don't take that for one one minute get out immediately even if it means that your phd will be slightly longer um you know get out and i, I help a lot of people do that actually work out of a of a destructive lab situation there's plenty of great labs out there i don't want it to make sound dreary you know um, there's tons of great labs and great mentors um but if you end up in one of these labs that is abusive or you really need to get to make a change. That would be my, my early career advice. I would say. Do you have like a favorite place to go to find out about different career paths? So you mentioned that at 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's ugh, the internet is just fabulous for resources. There's pod, great <laughs> podcasts like this. I really think that listening to people's stories is extremely instructive and a lot of stories. And why is that? Because everybody's story is going to be slightly different. So you may listen to my story and say, pharma, I'm never doing that. You know, that's not my story. So I may not be the first jump. You know, my story is not your story, but you may learn what I liked about pharma and what I didn't like. And then you may say, that's not what I want to do. So I don't like pharma. So you're going to learn from every individual story. So the more different careers you can be exposed to, the better. The other important thing about that is most jobs are never advertised. I don't know how to emphasize that enough. The only way you're going to find out about the really cool jobs is to know a lot of people. So, so put it out. Yeah. Put it out there. <laughs> Let yeah. others know that you're, you're looking for a job. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What were you going to say, Alfred? I am in San Francisco because of exactly that. That was the postdoc was yeah. not. He never ever, uh, like advertised for a postdoc, but it was so interesting. And I saw, I saw as as you mentioned, I saw the match: a person, yeah. a, a, a human being, and someone that will uh, will give me the space plus the tools, the soft, the plus skills. Sorry, you see, I implemented. Yeah. <laughs> You can say soft skills. I know what you mean. I'm a bit soft since COVID. But, but the plus skills that that will right. would coincide with what I feel, what I see my career going to. So, yeah. So the, it was not advertised. Yeah. It was just. I think right. That's how it happens. I think also like if you think about how we are, you know, we learn from our parents, and then sometimes we do a lot of the same things to our own kids. Maybe we can change some of our style, but. We learn a lot about how we are as parents from our own parents for the good and the bad, right? Um, you know, your PI is a, your boss for a long time and they have a lot of power and you're going to learn a lot from them. So if they're a bad example, um, you're going to carry a lot of those lessons into your career. And so you have to be a little judgmental about them. You can't just say, well, he's a really good scientist, even if he's a little handsy in the lab. He grabs the women, but he writes great papers, you know? It, it, that's those things can't be separated. That's evil for everyone. That's not the lesson and the style that you want to take away. So you have to be judgmental about that. I think that was so much information. And so, <laughs> like, you have to edit. You have to uh, edit. No, no, no. No, uh, no. I don't think we need to edit it at all. We, <laughs> we keep it raw. No. <laughs> no, I think I think any edit will just remove uh, a, a very important tip along the way. And, and yeah, we. But okay. it's, it's awesome. And really, thank you so much for like taking the time and, and, oh, and my pleasure and talking to us and really, as you said, exposing people to your story. And 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 this is hopefully that will take uh, uh, this story and and a bunch more and, and do a informed, conscious decision of where they want to be in their life. Yeah, I, 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 you know, look, there are some. There's luck is a part of it, but you can make some decisions. So. Yeah. Just take a, some of the luck out and put in some conscious choice. Thank you so much, Joanne. It was yeah. really a pleasure. And it, it, it was fun to learn about AdGene. Like I <laughs> obviously know about AdGene and use their, your um, services, but I've never known how much more there is behind it. So. Oh, there's so much. So this, the blog, the AdGene blog is fantastic. You should sign up. It's got fantastic science and great yeah. career stuff. So and I don't know if you met, if you know this, Lena, but we were I, I, I did. <laughs> we're Midway. Uh, these guys are wearing the same uh, T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Also, I like the, um, the name of your podcast, that it's Macadamia. That's very cute. I like that. 
Because it's because it's a little nuts, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> exactly, and a very hard nut to crack. <laughs> and a very that's good, a hard nut to crack. I like that. I like that. Thank you. Excellent. All right. Great. Right. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye.